that's a pretty big bang. And when you fire that thing, you can go have coffee. It's a formidable blast. It's it's full on. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your guest host for this week, Dom Baker from Nelson, BC. A big thanks to Caleb for having me back for another season. And thanks, Caleb, for producing this episode. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, as well as Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Well, it's mid-February now, and the Northern Hemisphere winter is well underway. Here in Southern BC, we've been through some busy avalanche cycles, with some notably large avalanches. Avalanche control teams have been busy since early December, with lots of new snow and some touchy, persistent weak layers. This episode is about that avalanche control and many of the different techniques used here in North America. This episode is inspired by a comment from a listener that a lot of our interviews have referred to avalanche control methods that maybe aren't commonly known amongst the general public. What are racks? What is a daisy bell? What exactly does a VEASAN tower do? These are questions that we aim to answer during this episode. For this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Mark Vesley an avalanche consultant and forecaster with a background in ski hills, guiding, and industrial work, as well as Rob Anderson, the senior manager of the Avalanche and Weather Program for the BC Ministry of Transportation, and Val Vazotsky, the district operations manager and former longtime avalanche technician for the BC Ministry of Transportation out of Revelstoke. We go through avalanche control techniques one by one, from ski cutting to heli bombing to racks, remote avalanche control systems. We've all used these systems, and I asked the guys to explain what they are and how they work. Hopefully this helps to provide some context to some of the awesome avalanche control stories you may have heard in other episodes. Enjoy. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm stoked to be joined today by uh, three super experienced guys from the Canadian avalanche industry um, that between them bring experience from uh, ski hills, uh, guiding, industry, and uh, the provincial highway system. So I think we're going to cover a lot of information here. The idea behind today's episode is to talk about different methods of avalanche control techniques. Uh, I can't think of better guys to uh, to discuss this with me. So uh, thanks for joining me, guys, and uh, like to bring you in and do some introductions. Uh, Mark, why don't we start with you? You taught my CA level one course, the first ever professional course. Um, and then just recently taught the level three course. So going full circle there. Um, welcome Mark. And thanks for joining us. Maybe you can give us a bit of your, uh, your background and, um, how you got into the industry and where you're at today. Yeah, for sure. Um, thanks for having me and asking me to join in the conversation. It's awesome. Um, yeah, my name is Mark Besley. I grew up in Southern Alberta, a small town called Clairsholm. Um, we grew up skiing and kind of playing outside, um, that more or less kindled a little bit of the foundations for where I ended up today. Um, after, let's see, as far as avalanche work goes, my background is mainly rooted in lift access ski areas. Um, in the later part of my career, probably about a decade or so ago, I, 
went down the avenue of also developing as a ski guide and the uh, would bring me more or less to present day where I'm mainly working in industry now as a consultant and uh, and just doing operational stuff for uh, construction and mining projects and that type of thing. Right on. And I understand we're speaking to you from the Great White North up there. Uh, sounds like your avalanche season has started already. Yeah. Yeah. The first uh, day where we had a, a recorded hazard to a road was a September 28th. So it, uh, it didn't hold any punches and currently it's snowing and blowing. So it's game on. <laughs> no kidding. A far cry from the, uh, the sun and golden larches of the South here. Great. Well, thanks, uh, Rob. I'd love to bring you in next. Uh, you know, you gave me a great opportunity, hired me on in the provincial highway system and, uh, owe you a lot for that, that opportunity. So, uh, thanks for joining us. Maybe you can give us a background as well. Yeah. And thanks for the invitation. It's nice to be here. Um, see, I started, uh, a ski patrol background, uh, whitewater in the, uh, the early nineties. And I worked, uh, at whitewater until 2004 and that's when I started with highways up at Kootenai Passes and as and when um, so that's sort of where I uh, got my foot in the door with highways and I was at Kootenai Pass for the most part from 2004 to 2016 although I did one season in uh, Bear Pass uh, near Stewart 2006-2007 uh, and then in 2016 I got the uh, position of the senior manager of the Avalanche Weather Programs so which is nice I can um, still based in Nelson <clears throat> which is great and uh, I've been at that for the last five years. And I guess through that, um, I spent six years on the board of directors with the uh, Canadian Avalanche Association, two as the president and four as the vice president, and also uh, was involved with CARTA and had a working avalanche job for eight years. Uh, sort of through that sort of late whitewater, early highways kind of period. I remember um, Aquila well. I remember that yeah. dog. He's a good dog. <laughs> right on. Okay, awesome. Thanks for joining us. And then uh, Val, you're coming to us from Revelstoke. Uh, Give me a great opportunity to work with you last winter. Lots to learn up there. That's uh, that's a very intense program with a lot of terrain to cover. So uh, yeah, if you don't mind uh, giving us some of your background as well. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, thanks for inviting me. My name is Val Vizotsky and uh, I grew up out east in Montreal. And uh, in the 80s, I moved out to Banff and started working at the ski hills uh, in Sunshine Village in Norway. Um, started there and then in 1999, Got a job with the Ministry of Transportation up in Stewart. So I did two years up in Bear Pass. I did, and then I transferred down to the Coquihalla program uh, down in Hope. I worked seven years there. And 2010, I moved up to Revelstoke. I was the uh, assistant forecaster here. And in 2013, I took over and uh, became the Avalanche program supervisor. And uh, I just transitioned out of that position right now. So I'm the operations manager. Sphere transportation area here, and I'll still have the avalanche program under me. Just won't be um, directly involved in the avalanche control anymore. Um, yeah, that's a, that about covers it. Right on. Well, it's a lot of depth of experience here, and it sounds like everybody got their start at the ski hill. Um, so uh, why don't we start there? I think um, the idea here is to wa- work through the various different techniques of avalanche control. There's a lot of different stuff that people have heard referred to on the podcast before. And so I just want to go through each one, one by one, and um, kind of uh, have a bit of an explainer. So why don't we start with ski cutting? It doesn't necessarily always involve explosives. And I think that at its heart, um, that's probably the most simple and perhaps the most commonly used method 
of Avalanche Control. Mark, I was hoping to start with you because you've uh, got a lot of experience at the ski hill and working at Fernie, which is a pretty intense place, lots and lots of avalanche terrain. Um, and from what I understand, lots of small little features within the ski area that you probably have to seek and destroy with a ski cutting technique. I was wondering if you could give us a sense of the technique and kind of how it works and, you know, your take on it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, ski cutting in a professional context. Um, we also can refer to it as uh, skier controlled avalanche releases where the skier is actually um, applying stress into the snow and, and trying to test the snow. And if there is a, a stability concern in there, you're, you're hopefully initiating it. Um, I think a lot of the, the recreational listeners would be able to relate to that or the technique anyway. Um, it's not necessarily only applied with a ski. It could also be applied with a snowboard or a snowmobile. Um, but ba the, the basic principle is just applying energy into the snow. And you're doing that in a, in a very calculated um, location. So generally, you're looking for terrain features that promote stress or um, a probable failure point. And then if you put yourself in that, in that location um, and the snow has a, a propensity to want to fail, uh, chances are it, it will. So I'd say one of the foundations or more really important part of ski cutting is reading the terrain. Um, that's a very, very important part of it. Technique wise, um, I think that's a little bit of a difficult question to just maybe give a, a general prescription to, because I, I do believe it depends uh, a lot on the configuration of the terrain, how it's holding the snow, as well as the, the snow property that you might be working with. Um, sometimes you might need lots of momentum where you're working from uh, a safe area to another. And other times you may have to adopt almost uh, a slow kind of start, stop and stomping action into a specific location to try to uh, prompt the snow into failure. Um, another example of this, I, I think might be uh, with a wet snow condition. Uh, oftentimes that demands that uh, the, the technician or the patroller is is got a suitable amount of energy and then you're, you're more or less pushing and trying to build the mass so that it overcomes the the friction within the snow itself and you almost have to kind of go for a ride with it a little bit to get it moving and then once it's on its way with enough mass it may entrain and then just continue to self-propel down slope so um I, I think in general the the key thing with ski cutting is it's something to be careful with <laughs> I think anyone that's probably played with it has um, has certainly had a a very personal moment with the snow. Um, probably a an opportunity to to feel some of its power, especially if things don't go correct. Um, you're definitely intimate with the hazard condition, and the you, the risk profile there is a little bit unique because you're definitely um, you're on the slope and and you're directly in contact with um, with the avalanche. Um, I guess final things with it, it, it is very, it's a very widely used practice in ski areas, um, because where it really excels is, um, being able to cover expanse amounts of terrain 
and do it very quickly. And so when you have um, a near surface problem that uh, doesn't present a lot of uh, danger or hazard to to the worker, but you do need to clean things up, uh, that's where that technique really excels because you can you can basically move through, touch the prone features, clean them up, and then for your uh, for your skiing guests, they don't have to worry about coming into any kind of contact or a surprise. So, right on. So I think uh, it sounds like every situation is going to be a little bit different, um, terrain dependent. And uh, to your point of reading the terrain, would you say that having a, a good uh, estimation of the expected size is super important when you're ski cutting, so you don't end up biting off more than you can chew? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of the, the point on the snow properties that you're working with. Um, you have to definitely understand and be calibrated to limits. Um, in general, any size of avalanche that um, uh, can potentially bury you, I would say that's a reasonable cutoff that you probably shouldn't be playing with that. Um, I think a, a lot of programs have uh, gone the way of trying to draw a line in the sand of just saying that if we expect the avalanches will exceed a, a certain magnitude, usually it's somewhere in the ballpark of a size one, uh, that we won't employ that, that technique. We will, uh, test, test the slope with, um, a strategy that doesn't expose people that way first, and then you may apply a ski cutting technique to clean up whatever's left over. Awesome. Well, I think that covers it really well. Um, I guess by definition, a size two is big enough to very injure or kill us. So it seems pretty reasonable to um, not air into that. Um, so then in terms of a technique that would keep the the operator, the the uh, the worker away from the hazard a bit, um, Rob, I was hoping you could talk to us a bit about hand charging. I know Whitewater is a, an area that's very hand charging focused. Um, a lot of early mornings spent humping up the ridge with a backpack full of uh, explosives. So perhaps you can just give us a primer on um, how the hand charging works. Sure. Yeah. Hand charging is, uh, again, it's, it's a, it's a good, you know, method of avalanche control and it's, it's an inexpensive method of avalanche control. And obviously a lot less expensive than uh, <clears throat> helicopter bombing or, uh, or installing a big rack system or something like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a low cost solution that, you know, lots of ski areas employ, you know, for the most part, ski areas, hand charge routes. Um, <clears throat> and essentially you're, uh, um, yeah, you're hiking up the ridge with your explosives and a, you know, and a blasting plan and, uh, and, uh, and you're doing a combination of either, uh, you know, hanging shots off of a rope or something like that, or, or, or just to run them into the snow and do the same very, you know, similar to heli bombing where you've got your, your charge and your fuse. And, you know, as you go along from point to point, you, you know, you stop and you set yourself up and you pull out your shot and you light it and you throw it over and you announce it. And of course, you know, the area is clear and all that kind of stuff. And, and you just move your way along it, but it's uh, inexpensive, but it is time consuming and it's uh, it can be fairly, um, you know, maybe a little bit heavier on resources than maybe some other methods of avalanche control. Okay. So um, seeing as the, uh, the hand charging is kind of the foundation for heli bombing, I was wondering if you could just uh, talk to us briefly about um, the way that little system is built. Like we have a, a safety fuse system here in Canada um, where we're, we're not allowed to crimp our own fuses. So we have like a meter long fuse little blasting cap on the end of that and then maybe you could just talk a little bit about how that becomes part of the the primer as we call it or the the charge itself yeah sure and you know valor mark you know jump in here but uh anytime 
but essentially there's kind of three components to, to put in together a, a, a charge, at least, well, two to three, I guess, depending on um, if it's a smaller hand charge or whether you're, you may be using ANFO and you actually need a booster. Um, so what you do is you have a, a meter is the minimum fuse length that we're allowed to use in Canada. And uh, that is um, uh, put into a, a smaller charge called a primer. And, uh, and a one meter fuse has about two and a half minute burn time. And, uh, and you, pre, you pre-build all the shots. Again, you might think you might need for the mission. You know, the machine does have, depending on what kind of a helicopter you're using, there may be some constraints on how much explosive you can actually carry on board. And you may need to come back to where you, where you primed your shots to reload and, and go again. Um, but you, you basically get, you get all your primers together. I know with, with, within highways, um, you know, our procedures are that we, uh, we put all our primers, you know, into a box inside the helicopter. It's a, a wooden box and it has the fuses and, and the primers already ready to go. And then we put our bags of ammo in the back seat and they're not, the ammo isn't actually primed and the ammo is ammonium nitrate and they're like, it looks like a big pillow full of little pink um, beads. Essentially what it is, it's like a fuel, fuel oil kind of explosive. And fertilizer, explosive. Um, so, um, so those you know go in the back. We keep those separate, and uh, and essentially the reason we do that is because if there's a an issue with the helicopter, uh, engine failure or an accident during flight, it makes it really easy to jettison the explosives if we need to get them out of the helicopter. Because ANFO itself generally won't just explode spontaneously. It needs a you know uh, it needs an initiation. So the really the most dangerous part of the heli mission is that is those is those primers. So it, it allows you to get rid of them. So as you're coming around to your your uh, your first run or your first shot location, you're pre-priming two or three bags, generally speaking, depending how far your shot locations are away from each other. And you have 90 seconds from the first um, first ignition of your fuse um, to get as many shots out the door as you can in that 90 seconds before you have to clear the area. And, uh, and back off and be in a safe zone. So it's generally two to three shots, again, depending on how far you have to go. Uh, so you pre-prime those, and then you're working again with, uh, there's, there's three people in the helicopter, generally speaking, um, uh, the pilot, uh, the person in the front who's, uh, who's doing the timing and the recording of the, of the, uh, of the mission, and, and the bombardier in the back. And, uh, of course, the bombardier in the back is tied in. Um, with two with a, with a harness and some hard points and a, and a seat belt and the doors removed and the uh, ski basket is removed and we're bombing out at the same side as the helicopter pilot so that we're both looking out the same side of the helicopter and um, and yeah we'll run in do our uh, as soon as the first bag is lit the person in the in the front starts a stopwatch and the person in the front is responsible to let the, the bombardier know when we're getting close to the 90 seconds. And then you sort of plan out how many shots you can get out in that 90 seconds. At 90 seconds, you back off, record all the detonations, confirm detonation, and you go back in for another run. That's essentially how it works. Perfect. So um, just to kind of talk a little bit of pros and cons here, Val, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the, the heli bombing, some of the limitations that you, uh, you see, like Rob mentioned with hand charging, it can be a little slow, it can be time consuming, but you do get a fairly intimate feel with the snowpack. Um, you are standing on... Uh, the typically the ridge top, so you get a real good look at uh, what's going on. You can usually uh, maybe apply some of the ski cutting techniques that Mark is talking about on small features to kind of calibrate how things are reacting. Um, whereas in the helicopter, you have a, a whole different set of limitations. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, typically with the highways program, which is what uh, Rob and I are part of, uh, we you're, you're relying on telemetry, right? right? Weather stations to 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 guess to figure out your snowpack. A lot of times, you know, you like you have profiles, right? But on the day of the avalanche control, often it just snowed and stuff like that. So you're just going off your experience with the the snow conditions and then the and the weather that you just had. Um, so that that's one limitation. The other limitation, of course, is is weather. Uh, you got cloud cover. You can't use the helicopter. Um, if you got uh, any kind of freezing rain, any kind of you know freezing on the on the helicopter itself, it can't fly either. Um, so those are the two basic limitations. Um, they do take. It does take time. Uh, you're limited to three shots. If you got to do you know some of our. Uh, missions are like 40 shots um so you know you, you can do three in 90 seconds but then you got to back away plus you got to observe the detonations and all that so it takes time uh, you got to make sure that everything went off right so so there takes time to do that um and um it doesn't seem like much two and a half minutes to, for a fuse to go off but you know after if you've got 40 of them and you're waiting between each three shots it, it does take some time, and when you got a, a highway full of vehicles waiting to, uh, at, a, at a stop point in your highway, um, it's time sensitive. You want to get you want to get it done as quickly as you can. Absolutely, there's a cost but associated course, with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and there's no rushing with explosives <laughs> with me either in my group. Right, there's no you're never in a hurry if you're using explosives. You're, you're taking your time. You're being meticulous. Um, and um, you're both observing, and, um, and, and you know, other things get into play too. Like, how long does it take you to do your sweep? How big of an area are you are you, are you actually controlling? Um, so, if you can limit the, the size of the, of the sweep, then you're you know, reduced your closure as well, your closure times as well. Um, right. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's limited to the uh, how much you can carry in the in the helicopter, and uh, and also mostly it's the weather. It's the, the weather that'll that'll stop you. Yeah. Right on. Well, thanks for that. Hey, Mark, um, I had a quick question for you also regarding the heli bombing. I know you've done some work down in the Andes, um, doing some uh, avalanche control work at a pretty high elevation. I was wondering if you guys encountered any limitations uh, for heli bombing in that uh, particular vicinity. Yeah, I, th I think it comes back to a lot of the points that the guys already made with just being careful to not overload. Um, with elevation, you're you're generally trying to work with the highest performance helicopter that you can you can get, and and then you're you're trying to make sure that your your margins are appropriate so that the helicopter has adequate power for what you're asking of it. Um, having said that, the the winds at um 4500 off meters up in the air with uh large mountains it can be a bit like the hand of god <laughs> and it's um yeah you just have to make sure that you are setting yourself up in proximity to what you're trying to do with a good safety margin so that if um if you are getting pushed around or whatnot that you all come home because the I mean, as much as the objectives are for controlling avalanches and the, and the real beauty of a helicopter, in my opinion on it, is the, the flexibility that it offers. Um, it's a tool that you can, in the right conditions, be very precise with, 
and and you can place an appropriate char size charge in in a very exact location and um and so the results that you can get or the information that you can get from the work you're doing can be really high quality right. and that's really where that technique shines so yeah great well i think we've covered that uh really well so just as a recap for the actual um nuts and bolts of the system that we're using for the listener we have a safety fuse which is black powder the old school 3000 year old invention of black powder uh burning inside a weather and waterproof fuse at the very end of that is a little blasting cap, and that's a, a fairly unstable explosive. That's the most dangerous part of the whole package. That uh, is quite a small little item, and that's uh, plunged into um, the either stick of dynamite, for want of a better word, or a, a cast primer, we call it, which is basically a small little uh, soup can-sized uh, explosive. So the safety fuse initiates the the detonator on the end of the fuse that initiates the uh the bomb itself which could be used as a standalone hand charge for ski hill control um, and that little package of fuse and charge are then placed inside a bag of info for heli control um, one thing i wanted to ask rob about here um, is something that i know that we've done together at uh, kootenai pass is called case charging so it's the exact same package you've got your fuse your your primer and your bag of info uh, but you're not deploying it from a helicopter. I was wondering if you'd talk just briefly about uh, case charging and the unique side of that. Yeah, sure. Um, case, case charging, again, same setup as heli-bombing, um, uh, except we're putting explosives on the side of the road, and it's used to control slope, short slopes above the highway. And um, again, depending on how much explosive you use, it'll be, you know, so effective up X amount of meters on the slope. But, you know, generally I've found that with, 25 to 50 kilos you're kind of doing you, you know it's fairly effective about 100 meters up so it, it, it's actually quite surprising how effective it can be and how far the slope it can actually affect and you know essentially you know what we've found or in my experience if you'd almost think that you'd want to put it on the inside shoulder of the highway as close to the slope as possible but from my experience i've found that it's more effective if you put it on the outside shoulder of the highway because that blast wave can just travel a little bit farther. It's not being buffeted and then knocked back by the slope. It's right underneath the slope. So we always put it on the outside shoulder um, and we might just prime one bag of anvil and then throw one or two more on top of it, just to, depending on the size of blast that we want. We don't want to put too much anvil on the side of the road because <clears throat> it could damage the highway. So we want to be careful about that, but generally it's the outside shoulder and we use anywhere from say 12 and a half to to 50 kilos, depending on the location, the size of the slope, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah sure. Point. But it, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is quite effective. You need to be careful. I mean, it is, uh, you are, you know, obviously you think there's a, if you're going in there and, and, and doing control, then there's obviously a hazard, right? So there's a hazard above you. And that's what's different from, you know, hand charging, which you're generally on the ridge, like you said, you're throwing the shots down and everything's happening below you. Heli bombing, you're, you know, everything's happening below you. But with case charging, you know, what's happening above you. So you need to have some extra safety precautions when you are case charging um, on the highway or wherever it is, because now you're actually below the hazard. And so we have specific procedures and highways where we have, you know, two people always involved in the operation. You have a, a vehicle there that's running, pointed in the direction of, of escape in case uh, there's anything uh, um, happens that's unforeseen. And there's a guard there watching the slope and watching uh, the teamwork 
uh, again, in case anything happens or if, you know, if that person sees an avalanche from above, they can yell avalanche and you've already got an escape figured out and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, so there are some, you know, procedures there and you want to be, you want to be careful. Um, That's a really good point about exposure from uh, overhead. That's one of the, the few techniques that we do where we do experience that exposure. Hey. Yeah, for sure. And, and again, you generally work your way into the, to the hazard zone. So if you're, you know, if your avalanche area is a kilometer long, you know, you start, you don't go to the end and work back and expose yourself to all that hazard. You, you know, you work your way in if you can. You know, the only downside to that is if you bury the road, order has to come in and dig a hole for you before you can get your next shot placement. But right. that's just the way it goes here. <laughs> part of the part of the logistical puzzle. Yeah. Right on. So that's a technique that very much relies on the air blast from the explosive. Would you say that that's a, a big component of hand charging is being able to uh, you know, we might often deploy the shot on the end of a rope, hang it off a cliff, and then we might be able to have that same air blast as well. Would you say that that's optimal for um, initiating an avalanche, having that air blast, or, uh, you know, compared to, say, a heli bomb charge, which is sitting in the snow after being dropped from the helicopter? Yeah, in, in my experience, it seems to be more effective to get, have an air blast. Um, I think the, uh, you know, a, a shot actually sitting in the snow, and it's in, and there have been some studies that are actually demonstrating that. Uh, there's been some recent studies in the states that that are showing the effectiveness of a certain uh, size of explosive over a certain area, and they're measuring the pressure waves, and they're finding that a uh, you know a, a shot that's placed a meter off the ground is has a, a a more effective blast radius than a shot that's actually sitting in the snow of the same uh, same size. Um, and then, then just from my personal experience, I would I would say that that's true for sure. So perhaps some dampening effect of the the blanket of snow there. Great. Okay. Yeah. So I think. Um, we've covered a lot of really good ground here. I just wanted to uh, touch on one last technique that's used um, fairly regularly at the ski hill. I don't know uh, if anybody has any experience with deck cord and wants to touch on cornice control using deck cord. That's not something that I've done myself. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we used to do we used to do some cornice control up at Sunshine Village up on the uh, Delirium Dive area. It's a um, fairly involved um, technique. There's different, I've seen it done di different ways. I've seen it done with bags of AMFO. I've seen it done with uh, punching holes into the snow and then placing the explosives into the snow and then setting up the trunk line, uh, which is basically the dead cord is the, is the trunk line. Um, and, uh, you know, it's you, in, in when, you, when you're going out and doing that, of course, you need to be harnessed up and you need to be roped up and you need to be on, on a good strong belay and uh, not just some guy sitting with a hip belay either. Um, it should have a nice snow anchor built. Um, and um, yeah, because it, it did actually happen to me setting up the, the, the corner all the way while I was standing on it. Luckily, I was, I was, I was harnessed up. Were you left dangling when the corners failed below your feet? You know, I, 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 I wasn't. I, I fell like five feet right onto solid rock. Um, and but everyone around me was sure panicking. <laughs> I, 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 bet. I had I had the best view of an avalanche I'd, I'd ever had at the time. <laughs> That's impressive. So, so safe to say it I, comes with its exposure as well, just like the uh, some of the other yeah. techniques we've talked about. Eh? Yeah, exactly. So I mean the 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 real the real difference there is that you're using the dead cord as a as a trunk line, and um, and 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 you've got several. Uh, explosive set up on the slope right and you're and you're and you are trying to to get rid of a cornice generally that's yeah, that's how i've used it anyway i'm trying to uh cleave that cornice right off and then that itself becomes a good slope test i guess hey yeah exactly so I, I, you know and i i think 
I don't know about taking all that time to, to, to dig holes, you know, or to, you know, we were doing a, using a big tube and kind of punching a hole into the snow and then dropping, a, you know, like hand charges into the holes, right? And then tying that to the trunk line. But if you've got AMFO, I mean, you can just stick the AMFO on top of the cornice, <laughs> probably just as effective. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, hey, would you, Val, um, Detcord is actually quite a unique thing in its own right. Um, maybe you just give us a brief description of what it is and, and uh, what, what you mean by trunk line. Well, so that, basically, you got your safety fuse that's attached to the trunk line. You'd have your Detcord connected to all your explosives and the trunk line. This would be all Detcord, right? And Detcord is an explosive. So you don't want to confuse it with your fuse. <laughs> um, and, and you want to treat it as an explosive. So all your explosives are set up with the dead cord and then attached to the dead cord is your safety fuse. And that gives you the, the time to walk away from it. Um, I think I got that right. It's been yeah, 20 years right. since I've done it. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the whole cord itself blows up all in one shot, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, so basically every everything goes off seemingly at the same time. There, there's a slight delay, obviously. As, as it goes to the speed of light almost, <laughs> you know, but yeah. Nice one. Okay. And then, uh, Mark, I'd love to hand it over to you here to, uh, to walk us through Avalanchers. Um, I don't know if there's any ski hill for its size, um, in Canada that uses the Avalancher more than Fernie. So I would say that you're, uh, definitely the connoisseur of the Avalancher amongst our group here. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. The, um, let's see the Avalancher gun. Um, interesting history i guess the the idea of it really came from uh a fella named frank parsno he was uh an engineer of some type i believe he worked with douglas aircraft and he he was an inventor on the side and he basically came up with this idea of a uh, pneumatic valve um and really what it is is uh some type of um, a device that has um, a pressure vessel on one side and then a um, another chamber that has a an equal amount of pressure on another and so when you when you disrupt the balance by dumping the gas on one side um, all of the gas and holding in your other vessel it, it it expels out a different port and and you can use that that sudden expellent of gas to do something like what Frank initially did uh, was build a, a baseball pitching machine is basically what it is. Um, Monty Atwater uh, worked with Frank in the early 60s to basically build the first Avalancher gun. I believe it was a Mark 10. And, and really what it looked like is just um, um, a circular pressure vessel with a tube coming out of it. And the tube of course would be the launch tube. And they, the very early iterations of that gun, um, they used to actually light the explosive, put it in the launch tube and then fire it. Um, and then it would throw several hundred meters and, and then land on the slope and you'd be in business. Um, needless to say that had complications with it. Uh, anytime you're using a lit explosive and then subjecting it to sudden impacts of, of gas pressure or whatnot, the, you start to um, wonder if that's the, the, the safest thing to do. 
and for lack of a better way of looking at it, they they these guys were very very clever and very ingenuitive. I think is the right word, but they 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 did evolve the the projectile uh, to eventually be something that resembled a um, a rocket with fins, and, and more or less the the standard of what it looks like today is the uh, the the modern avalanche gun. Uh, can fire about a one kilometer or, or sorry, a one kilogram um, explosive up to somewhere around 2000 meters of distance. So they, they, they differ quite a bit from artillery because they don't, they don't rifle the charge. So I, I will say that my experience with them, accuracy is always something that you're fighting with. Um, the fir- for the first thousand meters, um, I'd say your accuracy, your repeatability can be pretty good, but beyond that, um, if you're hitting within a about a fifty meter area, you're probably doing pretty good. Um, but the but but the real the real genius and the strength of the tool um, is that you can uh, apply explosives, especially in an overhead hazard scenario. Uh, if you're firing from a, a safe location and when all other options are taken away from you because of severe weather or whatnot, that gun, if it's dialed in, you can blind fire. And so you can be shooting into, into the throes of a storm and still be either reducing hazard or at least getting some kind of information about what the, what the mountain condition is. And it definitely has its limitations. I think you have to be very tuned to that if you're working with it. But um, the technology itself is, um, I, I think it's quite ingenious. And and I would say it actually still has a place. Um, in a time when things are, are modernizing and, and techniques are getting better, more, more um, uh tech savvy and whatnot that that the avalanche gun can still deliver uh, I, I would just say the a short story like um I, I worked at fernie for 18 seasons and shot a lot of shot a lot of bullets and you you definitely start to become maybe a little bit uh jaded with the negative sides of what the gun is where it's like well we, we put all these shots out. We don't necessarily get good information from it. And so you start to kind of get down on it. But then with a recent project we have up north here, um, because helicopters and everything else are are very limited, they're expensive, it's tricky to bring them in as far as far away as we are. And so we, we brought in a gun. And the um, I, I, was, I was just blown away with how effective it was. Um, in in a a very volatile and, and sensitive snowpack and it allowed us to to be very very uh effective and, and not necessarily have to expose ourselves uh and and we weren't reliant on on other things like helicopters or or racks or that that kind of stuff so is that um yeah does it paint a bit of a picture yeah absolutely so we have uh we have essentially a a potato gun here using um, compressed air to lob a hand charge that's shaped like a, a projectile with a nose cone and a tail fin. Does that sort of kind of give it a Cole's notes there? 
That is good Cole's notes. Yeah. The only other caveat to that though, is that the, the, the gas that's used in it is nitrogen. Okay. And that's mainly because it's inert. Yeah. Cause you okay. don't want to be combining anything that could be t- potentially explosive to um, the explosive in the gun. So. Right. Of course. <laughs> and then um, you, you referred to being dialed in with your gun to allow you to shoot blind, like in the middle of the storm. So you're referring to uh, setting up a new operation here. Does that process look like um, essentially target practice during periods of good visibility to uh, get the, the gas pressure and the, the angle of the barrel um, correct for and note, noted down for each of your, your shot placements that you desire? Is that, is that how that works? Yes, mostly. Um, if, you, if you have the luxury out of uh, having a fixed tower, that's exactly what you would do. You would dial in what the, what the angle of the gun would be with an appropriate pressure. And then if you basically are building a, um, uh, um, a target that's repeatable. And, but in a case like what we're doing up north with this more recent project, it's um, truck and or trailer mounted. And so that, that is a, it's a mobile platform that has to go for two different areas. And so in that, in that case, what we have uh, come up with is um, through some of the papers that have been written in ISSW things and the, um, and other ski areas have worked on this, but we, we have um, a calculation where we can look at what the firing distance is, what our um, angles uh, are, um, and then we factor in what the, what the velocity of the charge will be when it's exiting the barrel. And, and through, a, uh, through a calculation, we can actually come up with a recommended pressure because it will calculate how the shot will fly on arc. And with that algorithm, um, I will say we have a very good success. So we, we generally shoot with a range finder. We'll measure angles, plug everything into a mathematical formula, and then it spits out a pressure. And um, I'd say 95% of the time it's been right. So it's been That's good. Fantastic. All those high school math classes that we sat through just wondering what on earth we were learning trigonometry for. And then all of a sudden it comes in handy. <laughs> okay. So uh, moving on on the subject of projectiles, Val, I believe you fired the artillery up in Bear Pass. Is that correct? I was wondering if you could take us through um, the howitzer or the recoilless rifle. Yeah, sure. The, um, and the one thing, uh, using the howitzer and, and the recoilless rifle, I mean, it's uh, in, in a lot of ways similar to using an avalanche in that you're just sending out a projectile and in many ways, totally different. Um, <laughs> uh, for, for one, you're using um, artillery, which is basically meant to harm people. So you, you need a, you know, a one kilometer safety zone of where the, where the explosive is landing. Um, and um, it's very accurate, uh, almost always hits the target that you're aiming at. Um, and in bad lighting, um, I would, it's the same strategy that you use with the avalanche, except our guns would always be the same placement there. And you would have aiming stakes, which were would be calculated up. So you'd, you'd, you'd aim your, you'd set in your settings on the gun and then you would aim it at the, at the, at the aiming stake. And then, with, with, and that would give you the target, right? So um, the gun is not pointed at the aiming stake. Your, your, your viewfinder is pointed at the aiming stake, right? So it's, <laughs> and what sort of range um, do we have here with the with the gun for distance? Well, I think the howitzer had twelve kilometers. Holy um, moly! 
12, yeah, so quite a way. And, and, and that's shooting up into the mountains. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're shooting on a flat terrain, you could actually have, and could be could be further than that, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I think the range was 12 kilometers is what we had up in Bear Pass. I, I, can't, I can't remember. I haven't used it in a long time down here. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the advantages are it, it's very accurate. Um, disadvantage would be that for us in Canada, the cost is, uh, you know, it's almost $400 per bullet. That we have, we have to pay up here compared to I think in the states they pay seventy five dollars. <laughs> um, um, the other the other thing is also it's you need a clearance from the military to be able to use it um, and, and the governments. Um, another disadvantage is that they're extremely dirty. Um, you know if you if you don't like someone on your crew you get them to clean the gun. <laughs> 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 you know? So yeah so. So that, and and also the how the howitzer was was good for noise level, um, but the the 105 recoilless basically uh, what happens when you shoot that thing is is the atmosphere all around you uh, goes up by one atmosphere, <laughs> so you just all of a sudden just like that right. So you need so we used to wear in double ear protection, so basically the little stops inside your ear plus the plus the headset. And, and after shooting 20 shots, it, almost always, I had a headache, you know, after, after doing a mission of 105 recoils. So it wasn't the most pleasant thing to use. And it's, it's, and it's, I don't know, I found, I found the, the, the recoilless a little dangerous in, in a lot of ways compared to the howitzer. Howitzer was a lot more comfortable. Okay. Yeah. Um, Val, the question that I have for you about the artillery is I've heard that the shot more or less penetrates to the base of the snowpack before it detonates just based on the, its design intending to go through a side of a tank. Um, would you say that that affects its uh, ability to initiate an avalanche if it's at the base of like a, you know, four meter snowpack or something like that versus, you yeah. know, we've been talking about an air blast being the most effective. They, they're, they're, uh, I'm having, maybe Rob remembers it a little bit better, but I remember there was a little thing on the, on the fuse of the actual bullets that you could set. So it, it so it just just as it touches it would it would go off right when it touches something solid enough. So so I don't know how I can't really I don't really know how deep they were they were actually going in before they before they exploded. To be honest. Okay, so you can adjust the sensitivity. Always, yeah, we always have them set on maximum sensitivity so they go off as soon as they hit the snow. Super quick. Yeah. So yeah, super quick. Yeah, exactly. Right yeah, on, yeah okay. you could set them depending on what your application was for the for the weapon. You could set them so that they'll penetrate before they before they detonate. Right. Okay. But for the purposes of snow, obviously being a fairly soft substance, you'd have it as uh, and and also the desire for an air blast, you'd have it as sensitive as possible. Yeah, and and also it, it's a relatively small charge. Actually, it's only it's only about three kilograms of explosives in there. In okay. For the one hundred and five recoilless, right? The the and the 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 recoilless bullet. You know, stands up almost to taller than your waist. I forget the, the actual height, but it weighs like 50 pounds, and only th three pounds of that is it's the explosive. The rest of it is just is propellant. Oh wow! Right. So really, yeah, so, in terms of the charge you're putting on the slope, it's much much smaller than a helicopter explosive yeah. uh, at you know 12 and a half kgs at the, the precise. Yeah. yeah, right, precise. Yeah. Great, you guys. Well, I think we've tackled a lot of really good stuff here. As 
thinking um, with the time we have left, we could move on to remote avalanche control systems. And these seem to be the ones that uh, maybe are a little bit more of a mystery for um, a lot of folks. So uh, I don't know, why don't we start with Rob with the Gazex? You've got a lot of experience with that up at uh, Kootenai Pass. And then Mark, I know you've worked with um, a variation on the Gazex called the Gazflex, I believe up at Kamano. So um, maybe if Rob kind of gives us the Gazex primer and then we can get Mark to comment on the Gazflex. Sure. Uh, so Gazex is a, a made by a French company, um, Taz, and essentially it's a it's a uh, uh, it's a gas explosion, propane and, and oxygen next inside a tube, and it kind of looks like a culvert with the nose kind of turned down, um, and they're perfectly mounted in the start zones of the avalanche paths, and they're basically just big tubes, and you fill them with gas, and you and you initiate a spark, and it ignites the gas, and the gas creates an explosion, which creates the pressure wave, which hopefully to stabilizes the snow and makes an avalanche. Um, the parts, the critical parts of the Gazex system are uh, what we call a control shelter. And those are, uh, you know, basically mounted on the, the ridge of the, uh, of the mountain. And that contains your communications, you know, your solar panels, um, because these are remote, um, remotely fired devices. So you're firing them from the highway, from a computer over a radio, over a cell, something like that. And so that's where that stuff is uh, located as well as your gas. So you have your propane and your oxygen in separate holding tanks within these shelters. And, and then you've got pipelines running to the guns and one pipeline's oxygen, one pipeline's propane. It's about a 60% uh, oxygen, 30% propane kind of ratio mix once it goes into the gun. It's all based on time. So size of the size of the, the, the gun of the vessel and the Gazex exploders come in um, three different sizes. Um, and, and that's just the bigger the, the bigger the, the size of the, uh, the gun, the more gas it holds, the bigger the bang. So depending on the length of the pipeline, the size of the gun, it's all just based on time to get that right mixture. And then they, uh, as the gas rushes into the gun, it, actu it, it, it uh, uh, pushes open a, uh, an actuator that, that, that charges up a, uh, uh, basically like a spark plug. And then as soon as, that, as soon as the gas stops flowing, the spark plug goes off and it's like 13,000 volt spark plug. And, and there's two of them and it's basically lighting your barbecue with the lid down and it goes boom. Um, it's, uh, so yeah, that's, that's essentially how it works. Um, and there's you know, different types of exploders, um, uh, but yeah, generally they're, yeah, they're, they're mounted in the start zones of the, of the avalanche bar. Okay. So advantages of that would be uh, the ability to fire remotely and regardless of weather, would you say? Yeah, exactly. Well, that is the big advantage of having a rack is you have these these things in your start zones and you can fire them 24-7. You're not limited by daylight or weather. Um, and you can do it quickly. Um, so in all the locations where we've um, installed remote avalanche control devices, we've been able to cut highway closures down by 50% or more. And it actually even changes your philosophy in forecasting or maybe your approach to forecasting, maybe not philosophy, but your approach because you know the idea with a rack and certainly within a highways operation, what takes the longest time in a closure, and, and we're always striving between safety and reliability to, to, to find that balance, but the reliability piece is if we can minimize the impacts of avalanches on our highways and that cleanup is quick or minimal, like we always said, if we can fill the ditch with a chute, that's a perfect chute because we've reduced the hazard and we've minimized impact to the highway and get the highway open as quickly as possible. So the idea with racks is to shoot more often, keep the avalanches small, keep the highway safe. So you might see more closures, but they're going to be shorter in nature. And then when you look back at a whole season, your, your overall closure times are much less. Right you know, on. There's certainly downsides to racks as well. 
um, you know, they're only, they're, they're permanently mounted. So they're mounted in the typical places where your avalanches initiate during typical storm cycles. But then you have a high pressure roll in, you get some reverse loading, or you get some non-typical loading, and you're always living with this sort of hang fire. So generally speaking, um, most rack problems are complemented by a heli control program, but your racks are really where you place them where um, in your most frequent paths, the ones that close the highways first, you know, in, in your other paths, maybe that are, we have more room or let's say it takes a size three and a half to affect the road as opposed to a size two, you know, maybe, you know, you have a little bit more window there. So maybe that's the one where you, where you pick off of the heli bombing mission and you get an opportunity to do so. So you're kind of always living with hang fire with racks. You can't hit every little pocket all the time. There's always, but hopefully the hang fire isn't so um, significant that even if it does release on its own, it's not going to affect the road because you've, taking care of 70% of the problem that starts on. Great. Yeah, that's a really good uh, description. I think we covered just about everything there. Mark, did you want to add anything from your time in Kamano working with the GazX and the GazFlex? I would echo a lot of the the reliability piece is really the, the key. That's the thing that makes um, not only GazX, but I would say any remote avalanche control system shine. Because you can you can fire that thing when the weather's bad, when you're when the hazard's peaking, and um, and so your timing to uh, try to initiate reduce hazard is you can you can be precise, right? So it, it's it's very powerful that way. Um, just for the listener to aid, what a what a gas flex is. Um, as Robin mentioned, the, the guns just come in different sizes. They're measured by uh, volume. So you three a three cubic meter gun, that's three cubic meters of area that fills with gas. And that's, that's a pretty big bang. I would say that in general, my experience with working with a three cubic meter gun, when you fire that thing, you can go have a coffee. Um, if nothing is coming out, um, pretty good chance <laughs> nothing will. Uh, because it is, it's, it's a, it's a formidable blast. It's, it's full on. Um, a 1.5, the gas flex is just a smaller area. So 1.5 cubic meters of area. And the difference is on a three meter gun, they, they have a, a, a term they call an inertia exploder where there's actually a counterweight because when that thing fires, obviously it wants to bounce. It wants to throw itself off the mountain. So there's a counterweight there to, to make sure that the gun can move and, but it won't destroy itself. Um, with a gas flex, the frame, the engineering there is that the the tube can actually flex when it fires and, and come back to a, um, a position of uh, initial memory. And um, but but I would I would say with all of these things, techniques and the racks included, really the key is about placement. It's it's about um, making sure that whatever you're putting out there is going to give you desired effects. And, and it's not always in proximity to a slope. It's just sometimes what you might be looking for is ground vibration, right? And that's what a lot of these tools can do as well. If you're, if you're shaking the rock and you're moving the mountain, um, it's, it's like your dog coming out of the river, which just shakes the stuff off. Right. And, uh, and that, that can be just as effective as smacking the slope. Right on. That's uh, that's awesome. Uh, to add on to it. Um, so you alluded to, um, the size of, uh, the foundation in a sense you've got, uh, for your typical gas X, the inertia, you've got a, a foundation for the base of the gun. 
um, up against the slope. And then you have a foundation as well for that, that um, counterweight, um, which requires a, a certain type of rock and, you know, availability of um, space to, to, to put this thing. So would you say that it's an advantage for the gas flex to only have the one foundation at the butt end of the gun to uh, maybe give you more options as to where you do put that? Yeah, you might be able to maybe put it in some areas that are maybe a little bit more challenging as far as construction sites go. Um, but, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't speak to that. I think that's a, a really a question for the engineers and the experts that, that could um, um, speak to what, how, how difficult that actually is. Um, but, but from the, the constructions that I have seen, uh, definitely the 1.5s there, they are, it's, it's a much simpler design. And in that respect, I think you can put it into places that are harder to get to and harder to reach, yeah, no. maybe not as easy to construct in. Okay. Very good. So, um, coming down towards the end of our hour here. So we'll rattle through the last few types of racks. Val, I was hoping you could talk about the Wieson. It's another type of remote avalanche control system that like Gazex is also placed in the start zone. Can you give us a, a sense of what's going on there? Yeah. So basically, yeah. So the Wiesen Towers are, it's a company out of Switzerland and it's basically, um, you have a tower and on top of the tower, you have a deployment box and the deployment box, it, it kind of looks like, uh, like a six shooter, um, barrel put on its side, but there's 12 shots in it. Right. And it goes around in a, in a circle. And what happens there is it's, you call it on the phone <laughs> with your app or whatever, the platform on top rotates and it rotates till it gets to a hole and then the explosive just drops out. So it's very simple that way. And then the, and then the, uh, the explosive charge is a four kilogram charge, hangs on a rope um, uh, about two or three meters off the snow surface. So it gives you a, a formidable air blast. Yeah. And it, I would echo all the advantages that uh, they mentioned before. It's all about reliability. The nice thing about the Wiesen is it does give you an air blast, so it affects quite a large area. Um, we we we, uh, we have a couple of them that are about 80 meters away from the start zone that it's actually affecting, and it works very very effectively. Um, yeah, and I mean the, the the main disadvantage to to a lot of these racks is is the cost. You know, it's uh, is they're expensive to put in, so it's harder for ski areas to, to be able to afford them. Um, industry like highways, we have, of course, we, we have more funds to be able to, uh, to appropriate these items. Yeah, it reduces like uh, it reduces it reduces the amount of manpower you need to do avalanche control. It it it, it does it a lot quicker. Um, so just as an example, if we had to do a heli bombing run, we have to set up, we have to send two or three people to the staging area. They have to build the bombs, takes them about an hour. So just to make the bombs up and, and then you need two people and you need a helicopter and you need good weather. And then, and then you go out and you do the, and you do the bombing run. Whereas the reason I, you know, I just call the contractor. I said, I need the road closed. And I show up myself with a, with a pickup truck and my phone and I, you know, as soon as the road closes, five minutes later, I got a bunch of explosions that go off and a bunch of avalanches are on the road, right? So um, that's the attraction for, for us here is that it just simplifies our, our, our lives considerably yeah, and makes it the highway a lot more reliable. Which is a big factor of what Rob was talking about there. And then also yeah. for a, a program such as yours in Revelstoke, where you have 
five disparate areas that are spread apart like great distances, it must make it super uh, handy for you to only have to send one person uh, to yeah, fire the exactly, and, and and that person is only gone for the for for is gone for a way shorter amount of time. You can send them somewhere else after that, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, we got we got several area. We got five different uh, forecast areas here, and um, and we only have five guys. So. Right. And when, the, and when the storms come, they they start to affect every area, right? So you can get pulled in many different directions. Yeah. Would you say that it's an advantage of the Weizen that it's not attached to a pipeline to a shelter, like in the sense that the Gazex, you know, relies on having a shelter on the ridgetop, you've got to be able to run a pipeline down to the area and then have your installation. Uh, a Weizen is just a standalone unit um, that doesn't require that umbilical cord. Is that is that an advantage to that system or just a coincidence? Oh, I I think it's an advantage because then you don't because those lines are prone to rock damage. They're they're prone to uh, a gas is prone to leaking out of the bottles. Um, you got there's there's several issues that happen with the Gazex that you're not dealing with with the uh, Reason Tower. The nice thing the the good thing about the, the gas operated systems is that you're not doing you're not dealing with explosives, so you don't have to deal with all the regulations that deal with the explosives. Right. So, and a busy place like Kootenai Pass that needs to fire the Gazex, you know, 30 or 40 times a year, then it, you can have that volume of gas up there much more easily versus, say, 12 shots in that carousel on the Wiesen Tower that you then have to reload maybe a couple times a winter in a real busy winter. That's true. Yeah, there's, there's, you got way more, way more shots for, for the buck. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Great. You guys, uh, we're moving through it here. Uh, Val, while we got you on the subject here, I'll get you to mention the Avalanche Guard as well. That's something else that you work with in Revelstoke. It's a slightly yeah, different yeah, we idea. Have, we also have an avalanche guard here. Um, avalanche guard units are basically they're uh, you got to think of a, like a fridge <laughs> sitting on top of a tower and or uh, alongside the tower, and you can have two or three boxes per tower, and um, the boxes are pointed at the zone you want to affect. They're filled with ten. Each box contains ten charges of four kilograms each, and Basically, when the door opens, it shoots out the, the projectile up up to almost 200 meters, I'd say, about, it's about the limit of that system. But you can basically, um, it's it's like a mortar system. Once you open that box, it's like a, you're shooting out a mortar. There's a, a safety goose attached to it that gets that gets lit as it flies out the, the door. And uh, yeah, the difference between... And they, they also have a, a system where you can get an air blast as well called the Avalanche Master, which is basically the same thing, except that when it shoots out, it's, it dangles on a string below a tower. The advantage to that one would be that you don't have to be in the start zone. You can build the, the box outside the start zone. And then, and then so one placement, can have, if you put three different boxes on, it can affect three different areas. Right. That's, that's very handy. Okay, very good. So another explosive-based system. Um, Rob, maybe we'll head back your way, uh, as the provincial manager, you've had some experience with the Obelex, which is another product from, from TAS, another gas exploder system, but kind of different from the Gazex. I was wondering if you could give us a brief uh, description of what's going on there. Sure. So, uh, the Obelex, um, again, it's a, it's a gas system and essentially it, uh, it almost looks like a big egg and it's sort of the, similar to the, to the, the reason system. It uh, you can take it on and off the mountain. It's not. It's I mean it's permanently mounted, permanently mounted in the winter time, 
but it basically sits on a, on a tower and every spring you pop it off and every winter you pop it on or if you have to you know reload gas throughout the winter um, you can take it off reload the gas put basically a couple new bottles in turn it on hook it up and then you fly back up and uh, plop it on the tower so it's a removable device much like the the, the Wiesen and uh, you know the shot power it's probably they say similar to a well a, a small Gazex exploder say the 0.8 smallest Gazex exploder but but again um, you know every every system has its advantages advantages and disadvantages and and sort of Mark sort of alluded it to there the, the key thing I think with racks is is placement and type for what you're trying to achieve and where you're trying to achieve it. You know, Unvalve made a, you know, like for Three Valley Gap, a, uh, a traditional Gazek system was not the right choice. You know, we wanted a removable system, worker safety was a big part of that. So, uh, you know, the Wiesen system was a was a natural choice. And then you look at how many, you know, typical avalanche control missions they do per season and, you know, 12 shots is, is pretty good. Where, let's say uh, the Obelex, for example, you can have up to 30 shots out of an Obelix without having to bring it down and reload it, right? So that would be an advantage with that system, but it's a slightly smaller bang than the, the reason, right? So again, depending on your terrain, uh, how much area you want to cover, your your access limitations, the, the snowpack, all that kind of stuff plays into those kind of decision makings as, as to what device you're going to use. But yeah, essentially the Obelix is a, it's very similar to the uh, Yazx where it's a gas system and yeah, it's an egg and, and the, uh, the air blast comes out of the bottom of it. Again, it's, it's an air blast, just like the Gazix, just like the uh, the Reason. And it sits about a meter, meter and a half above the snowpack, and uh, and just a downward blast. Yeah, awesome. And again, yeah, remote and has its own solar panels and own computer. Everything is installed within the shell within the unit itself. Awesome, you guys. So one last uh, gas exploder that comes to mind here is the Daisy Bell, which is uh, similar but different. Once again, I think all three of you guys have had experience with that. I was wondering if uh, anybody wanted to tackle a description on the Daisy Bell. Maybe Mark, have you worked with that guy before? Um, I haven't worked directly with it. Um, I have got to watch others. It's more or less a very similar thing to what Rob described with the Obelix, only it's, um, again, a standalone device that can be suspended beneath a helicopter. And then the it can be basically flown into wherever you would like to fire it, and then the uh, the operator in the helicopter can fire the machine and and trigger an avalanche. But again, it's gas based; it's all self contained, and um, it's just a, another option. Yeah, right on. And Val, your program <laughs> in Revelstoke relies on the Daisy Bell for the Kicking Horse Canyon. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the pros and cons of that that unit. Yeah. So. It, it, the, the pros of the Daisy Bell um, is that you can just take it uh, below the helicopter and you can be precise with its placement. You can fire um, shots very, very quickly. Um, one, it, it, it recharges itself uh, pretty quick. So you can just basically go along a ridge and just boom, 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 um, you know, very, in very quick order. Um, the disadvantage is that the blast is fairly small, I would say, compared to an uh, explosive, um, and um, and also cloud cover. So so it's really good. It's really good at the like surface instabilities, close to the surface instabilities, which is what we have in the Kicking Horse Canyon, where you typically have a shallow snowpack um, and uh, Rockies type conditions, where you know you got really weak uh, lower layers, um, and 
maybe a slab on top. So it's really good in those kind of conditions. And um, but, but I know I mentioned cloud cover. So if basically with heli bombing, you're, the helicopter and you are at the same level, and you're shooting the explosives with a daisy bell. It's hanging 100 feet below the helicopter. So if the cloud cover is above the start zone, you maybe the helicopter can't actually get up there. Um, so that that was one one disadvantage we found with it. Um, the other uh, advantage is that it's fairly quick to set up, just like racks. I mean, you basically you just need a helicopter and, and you make sure all the systems are go and away you go. So just, you don't have to build any explosives or anything like that. Um, I think that covers it. What do you think, Yeah, it makes sense. From watching it in action, it sure seems like you can calibrate with your results pretty quickly. Hey, if you're, you're staring down at that cone that's dangling below the machine and you're seeing in real time what the effect of the the blast is and you can uh, target your shot placements based on the feedback that you're getting immediately yeah one challenge one challenge you have with that is is, is actually recording your avalanches because you're typically you're alone in the helicopter you don't have an assistant in the front there um so depending on how important that is to your program that that, that you're how, how accurate your observations are you might want to just slow down and and, and go slower than the daisy bell allows you to go. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Awesome. Well, you guys, I really appreciate the conversation. We've uh, we've been over an hour here, so I just want to uh, bring things to a close. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about avalanche initiation, uh, really the entire hour, but I think it's fair to say that there are other things that uh, are focused on avalanche inhibition, right? So uh, you might have fencing in a start zone, um, or perhaps you have some other kind of static defense that is based on protecting your element at risk, whether that's a road or, or uh, a drill rig or something like that. So that might be like a big diversion berm or a splitting wedge or a, a wall. Maybe you've got a snow shed. Uh, there's a lot of different things that are all about avoiding the avalanche to begin with. And then uh, perhaps it's a, a topic of conversation for another podcast, but uh, there is also a lot of neat advances happening in the world of remote sensing. Um, sensing avalanches. Uh, so you get that, um, to, to add to that telemetry that um, Val was talking about right at the start with heli-bombing there, you do rely on um, remote information. And so if you had some kind of um, infrasound or uh, radar to provide you with a picture of what's running uh, in terms of avalanches um, in, in the midst of the storm, when you don't have the visibility, that could be pretty handy. And then uh, honorable mention for, I just saw an ad for the drone deployment system in the most recent avalanche journal so that's an interesting one anybody have any thoughts on uh flying the drone and deploying uh shots is that something we're going to see here is that the future i'm not sure i think it might be okay for uh, one-offs uh, like if you just got one one bomb to drop then it might be a, a, a solution other uh, unless it can carry more than one which i don't think it can um so you know if, if you could have uh, something like an f-16 uh, drone <laughs> <laughs> there you go yeah i'm not sure i'd have to see it in action i think that's a great point you bring up about the limitation of just carrying one shot at a time it would take uh quite a while to do your you know 20 or 30 shots great mm -hmm. you guys well much appreciated um you all have a great depth of experience in the industry and um a lot of stories to share so hopefully we can have you guys on uh another time just to, to talk about some of your your story and that sort of thing but uh for the moment thank you so much for having a conversation about avalanche control thank you dom and thanks thanks robin mark yeah thanks very much thanks for the invite it was great
You bet. Yeah, thanks guys. That was that was great. Appreciate it, guys. Well, that was a great conversation about avalanche control techniques with Rob, Mark, and Val. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me, and thank you for listening. I hope this episode sheds some light on some of the techniques used for controlling avalanches in the North American avalanche industry. Many of these techniques are common around the world. This podcast is all about sharing stories, knowledge, and news. So if you have suggestions or questions for future episodes, please contact us. This episode was a result of a comment by a listener, so reach out. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Send us a message there. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. And please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get Caleb some five-star reviews. He's been putting out a great podcast for years, and those five-star reviews really help out. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Head over to MikeT.com and check out some of Mike's work. Music for this episode was I Do Love You by Age Diamante and used with permission from the artist. This episode was produced by Caleb Merrill. Thanks, Caleb. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.